Good morning. Our reading this morning comes from John chapter 18, verses 12 through 27. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First, they led him to Anas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest, but but Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl, who kept watch at the door, and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, "'You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you?' He said, "'I am not.'" Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Anna sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it and at once a rooster crowed. This concludes the reading of God's word. I prayed about this earlier. And it was on my mind as I studied this passage this week. Religious persecution is very much a real thing. Um, I hope that when you read the news, you're not just, oh, wow, that's really sad, move on. But, but in particular, when you hear about Christians being persecuted for their faith around the world, you stop and pray because Christians are. Even this morning. Um, if you read the Open Doors 2021 World Watch List report, you will learn that 340 million Christians, that's a lot of people, guys, live in places where they experience high levels of persecution and discrimination. It's a lot of people. One in six in Africa, two in five in Asia, one in 12 in Latin America. In the last year alone, thousands of Christians were killed for their faith, according to their research. That's just the documented examples. Most of them in Nigeria. Thousands of churches and other Christian buildings were attacked and believers detained without trial, arrested, sentenced, or imprisoned. You can't 
read about stuff like that without just stopping and, and recognizing, Lord, you have been exceedingly kind to us in the sense that the United States in which we live is not on that top 50 dangerous countries for Christians to live list. And friends, recognizing that should, should produce what I also prayed for this morning, a profound gratitude in our hearts and prompt us to say, thanks be to God. Amen? It is remarkably easy to be a Christian in this land. But that comes with its own challenges, which is another sermon. <laughs> but that's a gift we shouldn't take for granted, okay? But it does not mean that we are exempt or spared or immune to all manner of cultural pressure to downplay or minimize or hide the testimony of our faith. Do you know what I mean? So examples. The exclusivity of the gospel. Okay, that the fact that there is only one way to God, not many ways to God, that's not popular. That, that won't win you accolades in the public square. Contending for a biblical view of gender or sexuality on social media will tend to garner you more enemies than friends, right? And if, and if you go further than that and you, and you insist that all people, whether your skin is black or brown or white, have the same sinful nature and the same shared need for a savior to rescue us from ourselves, you will not be paraded around all the evening talk shows. At least, at least not in a favorable light. I, mean, I could give more examples, but, but suffice it to say, to, to be a Christian is, is to both be and feel like an exile, Right? If you feel, Christian, like you're a stranger in a foreign land, you feel correctly <laughs> because you are. The kingdom of this world has yet to become the kingdom of our Lord. One day it will, but it's not yet. And if our Lord Jesus Christ was, was rejected and oppressed on account of his faithfulness to his father, when he walked among us, should we be surprised when those of us who are following him experience the exact same sort of dismissal or persecution or injustice? We shouldn't be surprised. So here's the question. How do we respond or how should we respond as it gets harder, not easier, to follow Jesus in our own land? This is not some sort of doomsday sermon, okay? But it is getting harder, not easier, to be a faithful witness to Jesus. So how do we respond to that? Well, the biblical answer is not to take back Washington for Jesus' sake. Why not? There are plenty of people who would cheer for that. That's not the biblical answer because you cannot silence spiritual oppression 
through political muscle. It doesn't work that way. Right? We're, we're wrestling against cosmic principalities and powers here. A biblical response, if it's not that, what, what is it? A biblical response always starts with fixing our eyes on Jesus, friends. That's where we start, okay? Our great high priest, who is faithful where we are not, who knows our weaknesses, who, who knows how susceptible we are to the fear of man in a culture like this, who's not surprised by our fear of man, and who makes a way for us to be forgiven and restored even when we hide or deny the truth of God's work in our life. We, we start by fixing our eyes on that Jesus. This middle section of John 18 in in many ways, is another sandwich of sorts. I mentioned that last week, but John 18 is just full of sandwiches, okay? The, The context of the whole thing is opposition from the world against Jesus and his followers. And so, so in the first part of what we read this morning, Peter is unfaithful. In the last part, Peter is unfaithful, But in the middle and surrounded by human unfaithfulness, what is Jesus? Jesus is faithful. He's the faithful witness. And therein lies our hope, especially when we, like Peter, stumble and fall. So whenever we experience opposition or persecution on account of our faith, in the same way that Jesus and Peter were both experiencing that, John 18, this section gives us four things, at least four things, that we need to remember. Okay? Let's work through those together. First, first thing we need to remember, Jesus endured the greater injustice. Jesus endured the greater injustice. What do I mean by that? Well, chapter 18 opens with one of Jesus' professing followers betraying the Lord in the dark of night. Judas. And there's kind of a little dramatic moment, right? Where where Peter attempts to rescue Jesus by force. He cuts off one of the high priest's servant's ears. But verse 12 records the final outcome. Look there. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. And then they brought him before the, the Jewish high priest. Friend, do you realize that the world has never witnessed a greater injustice than the arrest and trial and crucifixion of the Son of God? I'm not exaggerating. There's never been a greater abuse of human authority There's never been a more sinister expression of enmity or impression. You will never have or experience, Christian, a more grievous form of persecution than what your God endured for your sake. To think we bound the hands of God himself. It's it's the unspeakable audacity of sin. 
isn't it? It's, it's the same rebellious attitude that we demonstrate whenever we, we attempt to impose our will on God instead of submitting to his. And that injustice is a profoundly important reality for us to remember when we are treated wrongly, when we experience injustice on account of our faith. Why do I say that? Listen carefully. Because I quickly forget that the greatest injustice in the world is never the way other people treat me, but the way we have treated God. I forget that, that the greatest injustice in the world is never the way other people treat me, right? But the way all of us as sinful men and women have collectively treated God. And when I get that backwards, when we get that backwards, when when our awareness of the, the injustice committed against us dwarfs our awareness of the injustice we have committed against God, two really bad things happen. First, we lose the ability to repay evil with good. We lose that. To to respond to persecution with compassion. Why? Because we see ourselves as the morally superior victims. We we forget, don't we, that, that we need God's mercy just as much as our enemies. As those who persecute us. That's the first bad thing that happens. Here's the second. We, we lose sight of the one thing that will actually comfort our hearts in the midst of persecution and oppression. What, what's that? When we lose sight of the in, greater injustice our Savior experienced. Well, then we lose sight of the one thing that will comfort our hearts in the midst of our own experience of injustice. What's that? The everlasting love of God. <laughs> We were singing about earlier that he demonstrated in laying down his life for us. You lose sight of the injustice committed against Christ. Everything people are doing to you becomes the biggest thing in your mind, biggest thing in your heart. And not only will you start to think of yourself as morally superior, you'll actually lose sight of the very love of God for you. Because it's in his willing, voluntary experience of injustice that we behold the magnitude of the overcoming love of God. To remember the Savior who willingly allowed sinful men to bind and drive nails through his hands is to be confronted in your face with a condescension and love that the world has never known, friend. I mean, just think about it, right? With a a single word, Jesus could have utterly vanquished those people as they were binding his wrist. I mean, he did it back in verse six, right? Last Sunday, just decked them to the ground, but he didn't do that here. Why not? Because he loved you. That's why. Because he knew our need for a perfect savior to die in our place, the death we deserve to die. Listen to the words of J.C. Ryle, who I do not tire of quoting. To suffer for those whom we love and who are in some sense worthy of our affections, is a suffering we can understand. To submit to ill treatment quietly when when we have no power to resist, 
is a submission that is both graceful and wise. But to suffer voluntarily, when we have the power to prevent it, and to suffer for a world of unbelieving and ungodly sinners, unasked and unthanked, Well, this is a line of conduct which passes men's understanding. Never let us forget that this is the peculiar beauty of Christ's sufferings. When we read the wondrous story of his cross and his passion. If you get so worked up in conversation or online or in the quiet of your heart, about the injustice committed against you to the point where you lose complete sight of the injustice all of us have committed against the Son of God, then you cut yourself off, Christian, from the one sight, the one vision of Christ that can assure your troubled heart that you are not alone or abandoned in your suffering. Why not? Because when you see Jesus suffering for you, we're reminded that God himself walked through the valley of the shadow of death first. And he did it to make a way for us to to always be with him. And he did it to make a way for those of us who are following him to do so knowing what? That there is no tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You lose sight of the injustice we have committed against the Son of God and the love he showed in willingly laying down his life. You lose sight of the one comfort you need. What did Caiaphas think? Verse 14, it would be expedient in a political protect your own authority sense, right? That one man should die for the people. Well, that guy's prophecy (laughs) was unwittingly way more true than he could possibly have realized because it was more than expedient. It was more than a a human calculation. What, What was the substitutionary death of Christ? It was the wisdom of God for the salvation of sinful men and women planned from the dawn of time. That's what it was. So when we behold our suffering Savior, what do we see? We We see... We remember anew that our own suffering for Jesus' sake is never in vain. 1 Peter 4.12 Beloved, do not be surprised. Christian, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. In your classroom, with your family, when you're interacting online, when you're at work, whatever context, don't be surprised as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings so that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Listen, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. What is Peter saying? That Jesus' story is our story. And how does Jesus' story end? It ends in victory, right? It ends in vindication. His story is your story, Christian. But never forget he endured the greater injustice. 
That's the first thing we got to remember. Here's the second, okay? Verse 15. The fear of man is a deadly temptation. How do we get oriented when we're experiencing oppression, persecution on account of our faith? Or just subtle opposition, whatever form. Well, first we got to remember, Jesus endured the greater injustice. But then we got to be on guard against something. What's that? The temptation to fear man. Because in verse 15, we learn that, that Peter followed Jesus to the home of the high priest, which I would argue was a decently courageous thing to do. I mean, he just physically assaulted the guy's servant. So, you know, he wasn't quite buddy-buddy with the man. And an unnamed disciple joined him, most likely the Apostle John, the author of the fourth gospel. He, he apparently had some kind of personal connection with the high priest household. What that is, we don't know, but, but he leverages that in verse 16 to bring Peter into the courtyard from the outside to the inside. But on the way in, something happens. A servant girl watching the door says to Peter, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? Well, the very form of that question <laughs> presumes the answer is what? Yes. It's actually no, 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 you're not one of his disciples, are you? And, 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 and whether the also indicates that she already knew John was one of Jesus' followers is, is unclear. But, but regardless, she gives Peter his first opportunity, first opportunity to make a really important decision. Who am I going to fear? Is it going to be God or man? That's the decision. And remember when, when an armed group of men, same chapter, approached Jesus, queried him about his identity back in verse 5, Jesus replied, what? I am. I am he. Well, Peter takes the exact opposite approach. Look at verse 17. He says, I am not. I'm not. Friends, the, the fear of man is a very, very powerful thing. Do you realize that? Have you, have you felt that before in your soul? It, what's, what's up with that? Well, instead of deriving our, our identity or value or security from God, we look to other people to construct that for us, to build that for us. Through, through the very nature of her question that the servant girl's expressing an implicit desire that Peter not be one of Jesus' followers, and he was quick to oblige. I'm not. He, he chose to be, in other words, exactly what she wanted him to be. He, he took his cues for how he should think and act from a human being instead of from God. That's what the fear of man is. That's, that's what the fear of man always does, right? Because I crave the approval of people, I fear losing it. That's why it's called the fear of man. 
But it's not just a fear, it's a craving. And, and thus, I'm willing to say or do or be whatever I think other people want me to say or do or be. And that's the ultimate problem with it, right? <laughs> that other people become our functional master, our functional God, instead of the one true God. The fear of man writes the real God out of the universe by exchanging the glory of the creator for the glory of the creature. So let me give you two examples, okay? Both from my own life. Lest you think I'm railing against something from the outside. First is old, the, the second is more recent. Those of you who've heard me speak in Frontline, our, our parent youth ministry have heard this one before, the first one. But when I, when I attended my first concert in the mid-1990s, I showed up wearing a green t-shirt tucked in to my khaki shorts fully with my khaki shorts up to about here. Because, you know, shorts should be at your belly button, right? Yeah. I have long legs to begin with, so you can imagine how that looked. I, I, the reason I can share these details is I still picture the moment. You know, one of those times it's just kind of frozen in your mind. You can see your little pitiful self. And as soon as I walked into that venue, no joke, the very first thing I realized and noticed is that I was literally the only kid with his shirt tucked in. Thanks, Mom and Dad. No, 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 not at all. My dad always stopped me to dress sharp. But I, that's the first thing I noticed. And, and you know what? I immediately felt this enormous pressure to fit in. You know what I'm talking about? Like one minute, you're not, you're just doing your thing. The next minute, you're like, I swear a million people are all looking at me. So what did I do? Well, I walked through the ticket thing. <clears throat> Subtly, at least I thought it was subtle, yanked my shirt out and kept right on going. You know, everybody probably thought, oh, look, all the wrinkles on it. Dude, that kid just totally had his shirt tucked in. I don't know. But I pulled it out and kept doing my thing, thinking no one was watching. Question, was it categorically wrong for me to untuck my shirt and violate the moral dressing code of God? No, absolutely not, Right? That was not categorically wrong in the same way that Peter denying his faith in Christ was wrong. But, but friends, I share that because the heart behind both actions is the same. You realize that? In both situations, securing man's approval and avoiding, God forbid, man's disapproval becomes my ruling desire. That the thing, the want that's calling the shots and, and all that I do. We, I'm, we don't say with Paul in 1 Corinthians 4.3, with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or any human court. What do we say? We say the most important thing, the matter of greatest weight, what, what is stubbornly occupying my mind and over and over and over again is how I am being judged or thought of by someone other than God. That's what the fear of man is. So, so what does the world say to a teenage Matthew? 
Well, it would simply say that I need to grow in self-esteem. Well, what does God say? You need to repent of your idolatry, Williams. You need to stop worshiping men and start worshiping me because that's precisely what the fear of God is, okay? It's, listen, it's, the fear of God is not a fear that trades anxiety for what people think of us for anxiety about what God thinks. No, okay? The fear of God, it's, it's a reverential awe that causes us to move toward the Lord, to draw near to him. Why? Because we are so confident in the steadfast love he has lavished on us in Christ Jesus. That's what it is. And let me tell you, the temptation to fear man, as many people say, oh, well, you know, all those teenagers just run around fear man. Guys, that temptation does not go away. It just doesn't. Okay, it, it changes form. That's been my experience now that I'm 37. It just changes form. So now I'm not running around at concerts with my shirt tucked in. Now I'm serving in a, in a position of visible public leadership. Right? Guess what happens when God calls you to make hard decisions that affect real people? Well, you quickly learn you cannot please everyone. This isn't like a unique pastor thing. Those of you in leadership positions know exactly what I'm talking about. You can't please everyone. And so no matter what you do, someone will think you should have done something differently. And so every day I have to decide as a pastor, who am I going to fear today? Who am I going to fear? You know, it's, Honestly, it's one of the greatest occupational hazards of pastoral ministry. If you care about people and you're sensitive to what they think and say, will I allow other people's opinions, including people I deeply respect, it to be the glory that fills my gaze? Look at that opinion of me. Or will I, will I allow God's glory, God's evaluation, and most importantly, God's steadfast love to preoccupy my heart and my mind. What, what's it going to be today, Matthew? Have you ever had a conversation where, where you avoided saying anything about Jesus because you were really afraid of offending somebody? Or maybe you changed the words that you, you speak or you text just a little bit to, to try to make that, the world think that you're really just like them? Or maybe there was a time you, you spoke up about your faith and, and people either laughed you out of the room or just kind of, <laughs> funny, dismissed you as a quaint relic of old. And you thought, I am never showing my true colors again. Done with that. Friends, whatever the form, when we experience even subtle opposition on account of our faith, we, we have to be on guard against the fear of man. We've got to be on guard against that because that's a spiritually deadly temptation that will lead you away from faithfulness to God. We've got to guard against that. Here's the third thing we need to remember. Verse 19 through 24. Praise God for this. 
Our high priest is faithful where we are not. Here's the middle of the sandwich, okay? Here's the meat of the sandwich. Really, the main point of this whole sermon, okay? Our high priest is faithful where we are not. Look at verse 19, because he's a good writer. John cuts away from Peter and back to Jesus. You ever notice what happens in a movie when you're cutting between two scenes? What what do you start to pick up on? The contrast between them, right? That's, That's all John is doing. So he cuts away from Peter back to Jesus because Jesus is experiencing immeasurably more opposition and persecution. Verse 19, the high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Well, in short, the whole, hello, Jesus, I'd like to learn more. (laughs) Shtick was just a massive pretext. Okay, They, they already knew all they cared to know about Jesus. Right? Ever since chapter 5, where, where he called God his own father, making himself equal to God, they wanted him dead. Jesus knows that. And so he responds with a question about their real motives. Look at verse 21. Why do you ask me? Who's on trial anyway? Notice that? I'm not another Jewish zealot, guys, who's, who's secretly conspiring against Rome. I'm a public figure with a public ministry. There are countless witnesses from the synagogue, from the temple, who've, who you could have interviewed if you really wanted to learn more, but you did not do that. You didn't want to do that. You just arrested me, which proves this isn't a fair trial. It's a verdict in search of evidence. Jesus is clearly not taking his cues from what people want him to say or want him to do, right? What's he doing? He's contending for the truth. He's contending for the truth. He's he's speaking the truth. He's acting in accordance with the truth. And that didn't go over very well. Look at verse 22. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand saying, is that how you answer the high priest? to which you can't read or hear without, I mean, just being stunned by the irony of that, right? Who's the real high priest in the room? It's not Annas. It's not Caiaphas. It's Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world by offering up his life for us. He makes a way for us to come home to God. He's the high priest. And he did it willingly. He did it voluntarily. He chose to die for us. He wasn't being forced to die by the will of men, and nor did he ever cower in front of their opinions and their judgments. He refused to do something, friends. He refused to allow the position or power of the person speaking to him to influence or change what he said. What what mattered most to our Lord was not what Annas thought or Annas wanted or, or Annas said was true. What mattered most to him and should always matter most to us is what God says is true. He, he walked in the fear of the Lord, in other words, by speaking the truth. Verse 23, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? 
Jesus knew that, that the truth, hear this friend, is not determined by the office or group identity of the person speaking. Okay, right and wrong are independent of human authority, human power dynamics, because they are grounded and rooted in the person of God. And so the biblical alternative to to the fear of man Okay, the, the alternative that, that Jesus modeled in striking contrast to Peter is not a, a dismissive arrogance. Ugh, I could care less what all you losers think. No, no. It's a humble, sturdy confidence in the truth of God's word. That's the alternative. It, it, and that's where the fear of man goes wrong, right? Because we, we allow ourselves to be intimidated by somebody's office or position or, or power or opinion instead of being ruled in our thoughts and, and especially in our emotions by who God is, what God is doing, what God has said is true, what God says is right or wrong, what, what is consistent or inconsistent with the perfection of his character. So whenever we fall prey to the fear of man, recognize the significance of what we're doing. We are giving mortal men a truth-determining authority that rightfully belongs to the immortal God. That's what we're doing. Whether it's the truth about who I am or where your worth and value come from or what you should think or feel or, or do in a given situation, it, it's really easy to stumble into that, isn't it? So easy to fall into the fear of man. But, but the exceedingly good news of the gospel is what? That, that our true high priest Jesus is faithful where we're not. That, that's our only hope, friends, for, for he's more than our example. The, the point of this passage is not, hey, what would Jesus do? He wouldn't fear man, so you shouldn't fear man. You should be like Jesus. The whole point of the passage, what's, what are the bookends? We epically fail at being like Jesus. So what's the meat in the middle? Jesus is faithful where we are not. He's not just our example. He's our substitute. He's our representative. He's our righteousness. He fears God the Father on our behalf. And he does so perfectly so so that all who cling to him by faith could have the same favor from God that the perfect son of God enjoys. That's the gospel. And so when you're tempted to fear man, instead of the one true God, know that the same faithful witness, the same Jesus, is able to help you in your weakness, friend. Because he was tempted just like we are, yet without sin. So when persecution arises, you feel the sting of the world's opposition. Remember, Jesus endured the greater injustice, be on guard against the fear of man, and then praise God that our high priest is faithful where we are not. Amen. Here's the last thing we need to remember. We'll end with this. More good news. Jesus knows. Translation, he's not surprised that we all need a savior. He's not surprised. Verse 25, John cuts back to Peter. 
and things quickly go from bad to worse. As, as Edward Klink says, at the same time, the real high priest, Jesus, is not treated like one. The real witness, Peter, is not acting like one. And this time, a, a group of servants and officers, the same group that helped arrest Jesus, looks at Peter in the firelight and says to him, verse 25, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? And again, he denies it. I'm not. But one of the servants isn't persuaded. Look at verse 26. A relative of the man, can, can you feel the pressure dialing up, right? Whose ear Peter had cut off. Ask, wait a minute. I totally saw you in the garden, didn't I? And again, Peter denies it. Actually swears about it. So Jesus is affirming the truth as a faithful witness. And Peter is denying the truth as a false witness. Why? Because Peter is terrified, undoubtedly, about what people would do to him if they discovered who he was. At that exact moment, a rooster crowed because Jesus saw it coming all along. John 13, 37, Peter said to Jesus, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Will you, buddy? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. I mean, you realize Peter was convinced that such betrayal was beneath him. Convinced of that. He thought of himself as as spiritually strong. I'm, I'm immune to the weaknesses and failings of lesser men. I am ready to rumble for Jesus' sake. I mean, it's the same self-confidence that prompted him to cut off a guy's ear in the garden, right? What, what did Peter fail to grasp? Like big picture, across the board. He failed to grasp just how much he needed a savior, friends. He, he, what did he need to do? He needed to stop thinking and acting like he could save himself and start crying out to Jesus to save him. And the exceedingly good news of the gospel is that that's exactly what Jesus came to do. (laughs) Not just for Peter, but for all of us. Peter failed to lay down his life for the Lord, but Jesus did not fail to lay down his life for Peter. Which is why at the end of John's gospel, we'll get there eventually, (laughs) Jesus could actually restore Peter to himself. So why does John highlight his friend's greatest failure. Why? He's not picking on Peter. Okay, it's not an apostolic inside dig. He's making a profoundly important point. If Peter fell, do you think you're immune? You think you're any better? It's not just the bad people out there who need to save your friends. It's all of us in here. That's the point. Like, like Peter, we, 
we need to grasp and, and we tend to forget the, the reality of our sinful nature, the, the depth of our spiritual weakness. How do we know that? Because we are shocked. We're just aghast when, when public Christian leaders stumble and fall. Or when a fellow believer in the church does something that seems completely contradictory to their profession, we look at it and we say, oh my word. How could they possibly have done that? Oh, But Jesus isn't surprised. You realize that. He's not surprised, and, and nor should we be, because none of us are immune to temptation, friends. Fear, fear of man included. People inside the church need the grace and mercy of the gospel just as much as people outside the church. Remember that. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 12, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands, take heed lest he fall. The whole point of this passage is that there's only one person who's perfectly faithful. And it's not you or me. It's not your kid. It's not your parents. It's not your hero in the faith on earth. It's not even your favorite pastor. It's Jesus. He's the faithful one. Great weakness resides in even real Christians. Remember that. Peter needed a savior. You need a savior. I need a savior. We all need a savior. And remembering that, friend, is the key to living in humility before God and having a biblical expectation of your fellow Christians in the church. So here's an application for you, okay? When the next scandal comes out, and I'm not praying it will, I am praying it does not But when it does, when the next next person that you know or you respected tries to trade the, the suffering of an exile for the fleeting pleasure of sin, do not gobble up the gossip with greedy self righteousness. Don't do that. Don't like it and forward it to 10 friends. God forbid that we make the failures and stumblings of our brothers and sisters, some sort of twisted entertainment or podcast material. Don't do that. Instead, remember the gospel. Remember the gospel. Remember what what Jesus knows and sees. He knew Peter would fear man more than God that night. He knows how you've stumbled, friend. He knows how you're going to stumble in the future. All your weaknesses and failures might be hidden from the eyes of men, your own eyes included, but they are intimately known by God and they are decisively dealt with at the cross of Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. Colossians 2, verse 13, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven, having covered us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Praise God for that. Jesus isn't surprised, in other words, that Peter needed a savior, that you will always need a savior. And thank God that on that night, 
where you've got Peter just flipping back and forth like a crazy man between rage and terror. Jesus keeps walking forward to the cross. Friend, if you haven't already experienced it, persecution is bound to come. And when it does, John 18 prepares us. We got to remember Jesus endured the greater injustice. We got to be on guard against the temptation to fear men. We, we need to remember our high priest is faithful where we're not. And then we need to not ever be surprised that all of us need a savior. Jesus will be faithful to rescue you, okay? He'll be faithful to forgive you. He'll be faithful to restore you. So don't fear man, friend. Don't, don't make the thoughts and opinions and evaluations of other people the, the gravitational center of your life. Fear the Lord. Fear the Lord. Speak and act according to the truth. And when you inevitably, like Peter, like all of us, stumble and fall, keep looking to Jesus because he is the founder and perfecter of our faith. Let's pray. Father, in so many ways, we see ourselves in Peter. It's sobering. It's humbling. It's not comfortable. But Lord, it's good. It's kind of you to give us a mirror. Because until we see the depth of our need, we're never going to see the greatness of your provision. We'll never grasp the depth of your love. We'll never stand in awe of your faithfulness to do all that was necessary to save us in the midst of our unfaithfulness. And so Jesus, I pray as as a church that we would be less captivated by the stumblings and failings of other people or ourselves and and just overwhelmingly amazed at your perfect faithfulness. And God, I pray for my friends here, even as we sing this song, Be Thou My Vision, that you would deliver us, God, from every lurking landmine of the fear of man. You know where that's going on in my heart. You know where, where that's coming at us this week. Jesus, we want to be a church that looks to you as the greatest glory. Because you are. Help us, we pray. Amen.